Okay, if you would please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Luke, chapter 22, I'll be reading verses 35 through 46. And Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this Scripture must be fulfilled in Me. And He was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about Me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It's enough. And he came out and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. And there appeared to Him an angel from heaven, strengthening Him, And being in an agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly and His sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when He arose from prayer, He came to His disciples and He found them sleeping for sorrow. And He said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. Father, I pray that by the grace of Your Spirit, You give me a proper disposition with this text. And may You powerfully through the text by Your Spirit help us weak, desperate people that we not go down the road of loving temptation. To the glory of Jesus, our great Savior. Amen. P- picture a mother on her, on her knees in tears and in agony in a hospital chapel while her six-year-old daughter is upstairs in surgery where her life is in the balance. 
picture a, a man walking on the beach, crying and praying with, with the, the pain and the anger of the news that his wife has committed adultery. And he's about ready to go out of his mind. These are not perfunctory prayers. In Jesus' name, Amen. They're filled with agony, emotion, pain, fear, honesty, and trust. Picture one more scene. A man in his mid-thirties in the woods at night falls on his face to the ground and with loud cryings and pleadings and emotions and with anguish and dread with intimacy, praise to His Father. And in the end, as a result of that process, He is strengthened for the will of God. That's our Lord Jesus. Nobody likes tests or final exams. But what's worse than having finals is showing up unprepared for it. So how do we prepare for a chemistry exam or a history exam? We study. You get to know what you need to know for that test. Well, how do we prepare for the unseen tests of life so that we pass and not fail? Or according to our text, not fall for the inevitable temptations that are coming. In our text, Jesus and the apostles are on the brink of the supreme test of their lives. And before this night is over, Jesus will have been betrayed. He will have been spit upon and slugged and on trial. He will have had sharp thorns pounded into His scalp. And He will be nailed to a piece of wood all before the morning is over. And His disciples will flee in fear, be overcome with confusion, and Peter will publicly and loudly proclaim, I don't know Jesus! Three times. Now, Picture a person who knows nothing about Christianity. Nothing about the historical Jesus or these happenings. 
I think from a surface reading, they might think, as we read here, that the disciples are prepared. They're ready. But Jesus, this crying, dread-filled, dependent man wasn't. Peter and the gang, they boasted just this very evening, I'll go to prison with you and even to death, Jesus. And we'll see, they weren't terribly anxious or distressed, but rather calm, calm enough to sleep. But Jesus, He looked like an emotional wreck crying out to His Daddy to please take away these immediate future events that are ahead. And it was His childlike praying and submission that prepared Him for the trial. And it was the spiritual dullness and confidence of His disciples that prepared them to get an F on their test. The point of this text this morning for us is learn from Jesus' example, not the disciples. So if you're there, In chapter 22 of Luke, remember we have been in this upper room for a while now and they're still in the upper room. It's during the Last Supper. Jesus has just finished addressing Peter. You will deny Me three times. And so pick up where we left off in verse 35. And He said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, Did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. He said to them, But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Because I tell you that this Scripture must be fulfilled in Me. And He was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about Me has its fulfillment. And they said, Oh, look, Lord! Here are two swords. And He said to them, It's enough. Remember, in His ministry, Jesus on a number of occasions sent His disciples out without Him to preach the Gospel, to heal the sick. And He told them as He sent them out two by two, don't take money with you. Don't, you don't need a purse. You don't need any of this extra stuff. Because Jesus was really popular in the land. They liked Jesus. And therefore, oh, you are His representatives. The people would take care of their needs. Remember guys? No problem. Things have changed is what Jesus is saying. But now, in other words, with His arrest, which is within hours, and His crucifixion, He knew now things are going to be very different for His apostles. Things are about to change. And that's why Jesus quotes to them Isaiah chapter 53. 
verse 12, that glorious portion prophesying about Jesus' suffering for sin and dying and rising. And He takes a portion of that and says, this is referring to Me. And He was numbered with the transgressors. And the reality that His disciples are His followers and will subsequently follow Him means they will also be considered outlaws. The world, He's saying, won't be friendly to you anymore like the last couple years. You will have to prepare for opposition. That's what I think Jesus' meaning is in all that He's just said here at the table. In other words, He's not saying to them, guys, make sure you have some literal steel swords so that you can swing them and kill the governing authorities. This is a word picture. Jesus is painting a picture saying everything has been going pretty smoothly in your ministry with Me, but now it's going to all be different. You will have opposition. But now, guys, let the one who has a money bag take it. (laughs) You might not be eating if you don't. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Okay. Notice the next word, for. Why are you saying this, Jesus? Because I tell you, this Scripture in Isaiah 53 must be fulfilled in Me. He was numbered with outlaws. Sinners transgressors. And He will hang on wood the next day between two criminals. And so as He says that, the same spiritual dullness that the apostles have showed throughout their walk with Jesus is on display again. <laughs> Look, Jesus, we got two swords! And so Jesus throws His hands up and just says, forget it. They're just not ready yet to get it. It's enough! Meaning, enough of this kind of talk! The New Testament scholar Daryl Bach summarizes it this way. I agree with him. Here... Jesus simply stops the discussion by saying it is enough. It's perhaps a Semitic expression that means He is dismissing the topic. Whatever Jesus wanted to say, He drops it because of the disciples' misunderstanding. And on this sober note, the discourse ends. Can you feel what is it like for our Savior? That meal that night. I've so longed to celebrate this Passover with you. 
and where He declares the Passover has always represented me and what I'm going to do. This is my bread. And this bread is my body. And this cup is my blood. And then they bickered about who's the greatest. And he's got to tell Peter, it's not going to happen that way. You're going to deny me. And he tries to explain to these people, opposition's coming. And they totally miss his metaphorical meaning. And you can just feel the cloud over his soul as they pack up. And they leave that house in that upper room and go through the streets of Jerusalem and out the gate and down the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives where they would spend the night as they have been doing for the last week. And verse 39 says it this way, And He came out and He went, as was His custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed Him. And when He came to the place, He said to them, Pray so that you may not enter into temptation, guys. And then as we read on here, have this question in the back of your mind. What changed in Jesus here? This is the Garden of Gethsemane. The other Gospels let us know that this part of Mount of Olives was called the Garden of Gethsemane. But what changed in his mind throughout his life that we have seen through Luke as a 12-year-old with the scholars and from the beginning of his ministry throughout, from the temptation of Satan while he's starving to death. He desires food. But he's fearless. Stands on. The Word, He begins His ministry in His hometown synagogue of Nazareth and by the end of His sermon, they want to kill Him. He's fearless. Just slips through the midst. He's fearless in front of the unseen demonic realm as He silenced demon after demon just with His spoken Word. He confronted the religious hierarchy again and again. And a week earlier, He entered Jerusalem and He went into the temple and He overturned their tables. This is a fearless man. This man has been prophesying. This has been a nine-month journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And He says, we're going to Jerusalem so that I may be killed. So then why? Why now is He so overcome with dread? Pick up in verse 41. And He withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And He knelt down and He prayed, saying, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. 
And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And we see from the other Gospels, he did this same prayer. If there's a way, all things are possible, please take it. And he did it again. He prayed more earnestly so that what? His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. In Mark 14, we, we read this, Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful to the place it's unto death. I might die from my pain of sorrow. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He says, my soul is sorrowful, meaning I am in intense emotional distress and dread to the point of death. Jesus is experiencing severe emotional trial. So much so that it caused him to sweat so profusely. It wasn't like a normal sweat. It's like a marathon sweat if you've been drinking water and you still got sweat in you. And it's just pouring off your body as if blood were pouring out of a, of a wound. That's what he means there. So what's happening? The history of the world is filled with people facing death. It's filled with people facing horrible deaths. It's filled with ten thousands upon ten thousands being executed. So, why such dread here in this fearless man? Why such an emotional display? The answer is because He is. A man. This is the human soul of Jesus. But this is no ordinary man. Every other man or woman or boy or girl in all history was brought into existence. This Man never became, but is the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity who in the womb of Mary took to His person our nature. Humanity. One person. Two distinct natures. That person never ceased to be divine, but that divine nature did not come into the human nature and mix with it and make Him a third nature. It's a mystery. But He is just as human as you and I are human. And so what's going on? This uncreated Creator who was 
made human in the womb of Mary and through His developing in His human development as we have seen through this book and throughout, He has in His humanity always had an unbroken and sinless communion with the Father. And now, here, this night, in the woods, He is horrified at the prospect of His death. Why? Because He knows what death is. Death is the wages of sin. Death for humans is the judgment of God. That's what He just said, isn't it? I am going to be numbered along with sinners. Transgressors. He knows why He came. He came to receive upon Himself God's very judgment against sinners who will be saved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 concisely says it this way, For our sake, Jesus Excuse me. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. God took the only human being without sin and put Him for us forward as the sin offering. Jesus knew the horror of torture that lay before Him. But beyond that, He knew that He would experience in His very human soul and body the wrath of God. As Paul writes in Romans 3.25, this Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation in His blood. That's that big word, propitiation. English word from the Greek, hemisterion. This big word, propitiation. God put Jesus forward as a sacrificial lamb so that there as He's being killed, God says, My justice, wrath against Sinners is going to be meted out on Him. And thus I, God, will have My wrath against sinners who will believe in Him appeased, satisfied. Apostle John agrees exactly with what Paul said in 1 John 2.2 when he writes, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so here's Jesus in the garden. He knew full well that He was to be the substitute. The sacrificial Lamb who was going to the altar where God's very just wrath will be poured out upon Him. 
And the next day he will cry while hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have, why have you forsaken me? So let's look at the prayer. Jesus, he walks away from his apostles over there. Depending on how far you can throw a rock, I don't know. And he shows his submission and his dependence physically by hitting the ground with his knees. And look at it. He prayed and he said, Father, let's feel it. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became human flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. That's the person crying out, Father, Father's love to give to the children. Father's love to care. Even evil fathers, as Jesus said, as evil as you are, look what you do for your children. How much more shall your heavenly Father give you what you need? It's what fathers do. And here's Jesus in His human nature, asking for something from His Father. Father, if, if You are willing. He's asking His omnipotent Father to do something. Some other way, some other cup. Maybe a postponement of the cup. Don't know if I'm ready. What's happening here? You see, when Jesus became human, in His humanity, He didn't take His omniscience and say, let's let omniscience come into finiteness and limitations of humanity. He is limited in His human soul and nature. He is just as we are. And in that, oh, can He sympathize with us as He prays. Is there another way? If, if there is, please use it. The Hebrew writer tells us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one 
who in every respect has been tempted just as we are. Yet, for Him, without sin. You see, as a human being, it is natural to abhor the effects of sin. Not only natural, to hate the ramifications of sin is good. Like, like, like pain and death, the great enemy. So it's natural. That's why we, we, we pray, don't we? Please, Father, would You take this cup of my child's cancer away? That's good. Jesus here in the garden is not seeking to disobey God. But in His humanity, He desired not to suffer the shame of the cross and all that it included in and of itself. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. And the cup is filled with bitterness. It's filled, it's very bitter with the sins of all whom He will save. That cup is filled with the wrath of God. It is an awful, appalling fearful, dread-producing cup. And Jesus is saying, I don't desire this in and of itself. Take it. Take it away. If you will. Here's the burning question. How could Jesus' will be free from sin? Okay, get you feel this a minute. Not my will, but instead your will. Oh, Father, how could His will be free from sin when His will and His desires is to have the cup removed? And that will of wanting it removed is not in agreement with the Father's will. In other words, if God's will is, which it is, the only rule and standard of what is right and good and righteous, then how can Jesus have a, a kind of disagreement with that will and not be at fault? Sinful. How 
are his feelings of abhorrence to God's will. Not sinful. If you're a thinker, that ought to be the big question. So let me just ask a couple questions as we try to think through that. Is it sinful for us to desire and to pray that the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world flourish without persecution? I think it is. But, I mean, not sinful. It's good to pray that way. Is Is it sinful that we wish and pray that our children be healthy or if sick, healed from cancer? Is that sinful to want and desire and pray? For that, I don't think it's sinful. Or to desire to pray for the absence of pain in particular relationships in your life. God, I don't want that. Please, let things go smoothly. Is that a wrong desire? Or to want the wicked, evil tyrants of the world to be restrained so that they don't continue to wreak havoc on innocent families throughout this planet. Are those desires and yearnings wrong and wrong to pray for? No. They're not. And they're not sin in and of themselves. Okay? Now, so although... Those kinds of desires. Those kinds of... Father, if it's Your will, in and of themselves, are actually good. Okay, Although that's true, yet God, in His sovereign will, may will to order human and temporal happenings differently than those good desires. Does that make sense? So, even though we, we feel and we express desires to God, good desires even, and that's what I'm talking about here, and that's what Jesus is doing, it is not sin as long as we submit to His sovereign will and His revealed will. Which is in the book. And Jesus knew intellectually the revealed will of God that He be killed. He just quoted it this night. It's about me and I am to be numbered among the transgressors. You see the next word in verse 42. After, after, after the plea comes the word, nevertheless. That's the key to our human existence. If you are willing, 
Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was pulled between two good desires. It is, it is good to want to avoid death. It's an enemy. It is good to want to avoid alienation. It is good to want to avoid the wrath of God. But it is also good, actually it is best, to want to do God's will at all costs. Jesus knew very well throughout His ministry, throughout His life, throughout this day at the Lord's Supper, He knew He was submitting to be butchered. And yet He sincerely prayed. Take this cup away from me. And he also sincerely prayed with every fiber of his humanity coming against this prayer. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Was Jesus' prayer heard? Absolutely. Actually, what's going on in the garden is a very, very intimate dynamic between Jesus and His loving Father. And yet His request was denied. I want you to listen to what one commentator says about this. The commentator is the Holy Spirit through the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 5.7 about what's happening in the garden in Jesus' prayer. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reference. Jesus' submission was this part of the prayer. Nevertheless, Not my will. Not my desires right now. Not the dread I feel that says I want to go that way and not that way. I mean, if you'll allow me, not that if it's against your will. Oh, Father. And through this process, the text says Jesus was strengthened. God sent Him an angel and however else He strengthened the core was that relationship. He was strengthened 
to have the victory and not give in to temptation. And Jesus' prayer in our text is surrounded by the abject failure of His disciples. In verse 4, we saw He said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And in verse 45, we pick up, And when He arose from prayer, He came to the disciples and He found them sleeping for sorrow. And He said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. We relate. It's been a long day for these guys. And throughout that long meal, and the heaviness of the lamb and the bread and the herbs and the wine and, and, and the stuff that Jesus was saying is bread. It's my body and the cup is my, my blood. And He rebukes them for their arguing with one another about who is the greatest and things are starting to hit them. And He says, this is about Me. I'm going to be numbered with outlaws and transgressors. The, the death of Jesus somehow is, is hitting them. There's sorrow there. They're exhausted. And so... They did not pray and fight the temptation. And so, they fell. They fell in fleeing. We'll see next week. Fleeing when the guards come. Peter denying Jesus. So what are we to learn from this? The first thing we learn from Jesus' model for us is submission. Jesus shows us how submission is lived out. He submits to the authority of the divine will over His human desire and feelings. See, at the core of the Lord Jesus, this human being's sinlessness throughout His life is His submission to the Father's will. Submission, not this kind of submission. Yes, I will submit to Your will insofar as your will matches my immediately felt needs and desires. That's not the submission He's modeling. But the submission that says, nevertheless, your will, your revealed will. God has told us much about His will for our living, but Your revealed Word, even when it radically comes against every fiber of my desires and disposition of my humanity. That's what Jesus models as a human being. He's starving 
his brains out in the wilderness. Satan confronts him. You're son of God. You're really hungry. Turn that rock into bread. His answer is, no! Because to obey you and to do that now is not my Father's will. Actually, my Father's will is written and shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth out of the mouth of God. And that's what's going on in the garden. Shall I flee? Shall I run? Father, if you take it, take it if it's your will. But nevertheless, I'm going to do your will. Okay. We're all broken and we're all sinners. And Jesus never caved. We know what it is to cave. Let me kind of cloak this in how it works out, I think, in our lives. Father, I just I can't the battle is too hard. I feel like having sex with my boyfriend and with my or with my girlfriend. It's overwhelming, Father. But nevertheless, your will be done. Or there there are There are many, many born-again brothers in this world right now crying out, Father, all I know is same-sex attraction. But but, but if it's Your will, if if it's Your will, could You take this cup away from me by changing the rules? so that I can act on it. Nevertheless, since you're not, your will be done. Your will of no sexual contact with other persons outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. The prayer that is modeled here has two main huge clauses. The concessive clause, even though this is boiling in me, that's the concessive clause, to the adversative clause. That's the word nevertheless. Even though that's true, something trumps it. Don't ever stop halfway through in your prayer life at the concessive clause. I mean, that goes something like this if we stop. Father, I'm I'm so angry. If you will, let me continue in it. Father, I don't want you to have my money. So so if you will, could you please make an exception for me and let me love money? Father, if you will, 
Let me go on being lazy in the spiritual disciplines of, of Bible and prayer and fellowship and service. Father, if You will, let me divorce. Don't end your prayers there. But look at His revealed will on those topics in the Bible and pray. Nevertheless, Your will be done. Strengthen me, therefore, to forgive that person. Strengthen me to give of the first fruits of my labor. To read the Bible and love it. To not divorce. To not be sexually immoral. That's the first thing Jesus models for us. Submission. Nevertheless, the second thing is this. Persistent Praying is the secret to not succumbing to sin. Guys, pray for the purpose that you will not fall for the temptations that are coming. In other words, I'm just driven, I'm just overwhelmed with desire that is down this road and not God's road on this thing. And now, put your head down on a pillow and go to sleep. You will fall. But blood earnest, sweaty praying is the way out. Because God focused, word saturated prayer brings into focus the beauty of our great God and our Savior. Jesus Christ. And thus, in that salvation, it brings in the beauty of His commands for our good. And when that dynamic through sweat happens, all of a sudden, the beauty of God in His way becomes more desirable than what we had been crying out for help in. And finally, Jesus demonstrates for us that prayer is much more than content. It's not at its core a formula that we mouth the right words and then close it up with in Jesus' name. Praying is a process of relationship with God. We do ask for things. James said you, you have not because you ask not. But mostly, prayer gives us God Himself. And don't miss it. That is precisely what Jesus needed more and more. Because it is His 
tangible, prayerful, Holy Spirit-filled relationship that increases our faith and our desire for His truth over our natural desires. James boils down our lives like this. This is, this is the life if you're honest with it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And He Himself tempts no one. But each person, every one of us in this room, is tempted when He is lured and enticed by His own desire. And then, desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Praying to get God. Praying to, to cause my soul to see the beauty of that You are in Your Word over everything that I am feeling rise up in my body is the essence of Christian living. See, Jesus' praying was not to no avail because the cup was not removed. His sweat his heart-rending emotions of honesty before His Father was the key to His empowerment for obedience. Jesus was in crystal clear touch with His deepest feelings and needs and human desires. And thus He was in deep touch with His need for real, blood-earnest communion with His Father. He was not desensitized to His need. Like all of us sinners are, to one degree or another. And that's why the Word of God, the Scripture in our lives, as our food, is so crucial to desensitize us again and again and again. Don't wait for the world to come crashing down on your head before you are desperate to pray. But turn off the numbing effects of the TV and just open up in the New Testament to the list of the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. Be alone. Prayerfully read them. And if you're not now desperate, I don't know what to do. Or just didn't pray for desperateness because God, I don't see in the mirror of how needy I am this day is every day. And believer, you who are born again, I'm 
I'm saying to you, as you pray, pray intimately to your Father. Mark 14 says it again this way. Jesus fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from Him. And He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Remove this cup from Me, yet not what I will, but what You will. He prayed, Abba, not Sir, great God in heaven, great power above or even a formalized pater, Father, but the Aramaic, Abba, which is equal to our English colloquial term, Daddy, Papa. And that's why later the Apostle Paul will write to all of us Christians via the Galatian region saying this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as son. And because you men and women in Christ are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son. Think of Gethsemane. He has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. And so come, and come often with the confidence of a five-year-old little girl on her daddy's lap, believer. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. And as you do, follow Jesus' example of being Honest. No hiding in prayer. It is one of the stupidest things ever devised of our flesh or of Satan. But with blood earnest honesty about your weaknesses. He knows them all. Christ Jesus felt His weakness as a sinful being. And so unlike Him, be honest with your sin and brokenness and aberrant desires. See, even though Jesus knew very well intellectually God's decree that He suffer the way He would and die on the cross and be raised from the dead, He knew that intellectually, yet He felt the horror and He wasn't ashamed to pour 
poured out to his Abba. Father, he did not try to look respectful or spiritual in his praying, but he poured out his soul honestly and fell on his face repeatedly. So be open with your sinful desires. Be specific. Because that relationship, you will be amazed at what work the Spirit will do as you cry, Abba, Father. Be clear about what anger, sinful anger you deal with and with whom in your prayers. Cry out and be honest about that bitterness towards that person. About how you know you're just too lazy and I don't want to do that loving act that I know that you were pricking me to do. In your prayers, pour it out. Be clear about your sexual, sinful lust and cry out, Abba, Father, as long as it takes And when you go to prayer and you lack any feeling for Abba, Father, any any affection for God, that's the topic of your prayer. Open it up. Help me, O God. Abba, Your will is that these things change. Change my heart and my affections. It's not my will here, but Your will be done. Father, our glorious, loving Daddy, for You have reached down through Your one and only eternal Son, And You've made Him one of us so that You would redeem for Yourself a people by grabbing hold of them by the Spirit through new birth and adopting them as Your own forever. And placing in us unimaginably the very Holy Spirit of Your Son Which is why any of us have cried out in response to the Gospel, Yes! Abba! Father! Glorious Gospel! I receive You. And so now in this blood-earnest work of sanctification in differing lives in this room, I beg of You, starting with me, Work, soften, mold our hearts into desperate communers with you. Amen.